0: Okay, so we are continuing in Matthew, um, and we're looking at the second half of Matthew 8. Uh, So last week, we uh, spent some time looking at what happened when a leper encountered Jesus. So this was someone who was a total outcast in society. You know, someone who had to shout, unclean, when they were 50 paces away from another human. Uh, Someone who looked actually more and more like the walking dead as the uh, disease ravaged uh, them. And because they were unable to have any sort of sensation, it meant that uh, their extremities would be damaged or their skin would be more and more damaged. Well, he encountered Jesus and was healed because meeting Jesus changes everything. Everything. And it wasn't just the the leper who encountered Jesus. There was a bunch of other outcasts who were healed. They were restored. There was a, a Roman centurion who was in charge of the occupying army. So absolutely hated by the Jews, he met the Messiah. And then there was a whole bunch of sick and demonized people who humbled themselves before Jesus. And as they humbled themselves, they received healing and help. At first glance, it looked like, God had dealt them a real rough hand in life. But the author of Matthew, um, he himself was a tax collector. So he was an outcast in Jewish society, you know, working on behalf of the occupiers. He defies our expectations because these people, they are welcomed in by Jesus. And so with that as the backdrop, we come to today's passage where we encounter two more people. This time it's a teacher of the law or a scribe, and it's someone who's referred to as a disciple. So, look, this is already so much better than the rabble we had to deal with last week, isn't it? You know, it's a promising couple of individuals. Let's see what Jesus says to them as we read from Matthew 8, uh, verses 18 to 22. It says this. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came and said to him, "Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go." And Jesus said to him, "Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head." Another of the disciples said to him, "Lord, let me first go and bury my father." And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. What on earth is going on here, eh? (laughs) Jesus was showing such compassion last week, wasn't he? But this week, it appears to be totally different. You know, last week, he invited everyone into his community, the vulnerable, the marginalized, the powerless. This week, it's all about some sort of like stiff challenge, the great cost. And the sacrifice that we're reading about now. Leave your father and leave your dead father and your grieving family, it seems to say, and follow me. And to be honest, this is, this is the sort of passage that it makes us feel uncomfortable, doesn't it, when we read it. It's If you were to read it on your own, as part of your quiet time, the temptation is to scratch your head, skip past this passage, and then find something a lot more encouraging. Is that just me? Oh, that's, that, that's honestly the temp, temptation for me to do. It's like, I love it when the Bible focuses on Jesus' love and his grace. I absolutely love it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Yes, Lord, I'll have that. That sounds brilliant. Or even when, uh, he's, when Jesus challenges us by saying, Love your neighbor... You know, that is a hard thing to actually do, isn't it? That is, that is a tough thing for us to get our heads around and act properly love the person in front of us. But you can still see the benefit in that. You can, you can still see the purpose of it. But when we read a statement like, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead, it can make us uncomfortable. <laughs> and unfortunately, we can't skip past it because it's an isolated incident. It's the cost of following Jesus is throughout the Gospels. Let me give you a couple of examples. Matthew 16, verse 24 and 25 says this. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Forever would save the life. For, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Or Luke 14, verse 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Man, there is cost and sacrifice involved. And by the way, this is why we systematically do go through uh, the Bible, and we go through books of the Bible, because we want to get a full understanding of what Scripture says about our Lord and Savior. We don't want to create some sort of uh, Savior, some sort of God in our own image. We want to see what the Bible actually says about God and and understands him more fully like, like that. But you'll find out, actually, as we camp out in this passage, the first half of Matthew 8 actually works beautifully with the second half of Matthew 8. They're not mutually exclusive. This generous grace and this cost and sacrifice, they work together for our goods. It gives us a more complete view of God because we discover that this passage demonstrates Jesus as a kind king just like the passage we looked at last week. So with that as our backdrop, let's further analyze why passages like this, they make us feel ill at ease. A key reason is because, actually, we approach Jesus with the wrong perspective. And this can lead to a fundamental misunderstanding about Christianity, full stop. Our perspective is I believe essentially that we can view Jesus a bit, little bit like a politician that we voted for. Okay, let me explain. Politicians, they are public representatives, aren't they? And we, we vote for them with the hope that if they get into power, they'll stand up for the things that we think are important to us. You know, They'll stand up for the things that will make our lives a little bit easier. Um, so it could be... It could be something like uh, lowering taxes or it could be raising taxes to improve the NHS or, you know, whatever your flavor of politician is. That's how it's supposed to work. Their job is to help our vision come into fruition. And we can treat Jesus in a similar way. We invite Jesus into our lives. Lord, thank you. I voted for you. You are in my life. You, you're, and, and essentially, there's this sort of subtext of you're here to bring me great comfort. Does that resonate at all? It it does with me. We've invited Jesus in. But then we face the same challenges, the same problems that we've had before. We still get sick. We pray for people. Sometimes they get healed, praise God, but sometimes they don't. There's financial challenges. There's disappointment. There's people letting us down. We get frustrated. And if we have uh, Jesus as our politician mindset, we think, look, I voted for you, I've been praying to you, I've even given money to the cause and my life is still hard. So you have not fulfilled my, your end of the bargain. Life's still a challenge. And actually, that's why so many people have such a fragile faith. And there's a book called A Resilient Life by Gordon MacDonald and he lays out some of the questions that people ask at different life stages. And it's telling to see how the stresses and the strains and the disappointments of life begin to affect the questions that we ask. So according to the book, and if at any point, if you're in any of these age categories, if you agree, feel free to amen, make some sort of noise, nod, whatever is respectable and for your age category. Okay? So in your 20s, you might ask questions such as, what will I do with my life? Or what do I really want to exchange for my life's labors? In your 30s, the question changes to, that: how do I prioritize the demands being made on my life? And then Gordon goes on to say, As th- at this point, most 30-somethings who seek a spiritual component to life will tell you words like, empty, or tired, or confused, and drifting come into their thoughts. And they begin to ask questions such as, what does my spiritual life look like? Or do I even have time for any sort of spiritual life? In your 40s, this is my decade, I know you won't believe it, but it's true. Um, In in the 40s, life continues to, to be challenging, and the complexities of life, they further accelerate. So we begin to realize that we can't fob off our failures and our, and our insecurities and our flaws. We can't fob them off on youthfulness or inexperience. And we ask questions such as, why do people seem to be doing better than I am? Or why am I so often disappointed in myself and others? And our limitations begin to outnumber our options. Is this, is this encouraging so far? <laughs> I, I think it's helpful because a lot of us, we ask these questions in isolation, so it's helpful to know that, actually, um, we, a lot of us, are, we're in the same sort of place. And it's in your 40s that you've often had uh, enough disappointments for disillusionment to really start to, to bed in. And if you view Jesus a bit like he's a politician here to make your life better, faith can often begin to unravel, it becomes nominal, it becomes squeezed out because you've had so many disappointments and you feel like Jesus hasn't fulfilled his end of the bargain. I've seen it with friends, well, I've seen it as i try tried to pastor and take care of people and at different points in my life I've had a very similar mindset. So I can relate to these questions so far. Do you want to know what you might be asking in your 50s? And again, if you are in this age category, feel free to respond, boo, cheer, whatever you want to do. Okay, so in your 50s, according to Gordon MacDonald, you're asked questions such as, why is my body becoming unreliable? How do I deal with my failures as well as my successes? Who are these young people who want to replace me? (laughs) In, uh, In your 60s, I'm not looking up now. In your 60s, when do I stop doing the things that have always defined me? Why do I feel ignored by such a large part of the younger population? As well as questions like, is there really life after death? What do I regret? What are the chief satisfactions of these many years of living? And then in 70s and 80s, does anyone realize or even care who I once was? Is my story important to anyone? How much of life can I still control? What a journey. It is, isn't it? It's life's journey. These these are the questions that we all have in store for us at different points. But, friends, as we ponder, as we reflect, as we think about these questions, our faith will be so much stronger if we understand the terms of our relationship with Jesus. Jesus is not the politician that we voted for, that we chose to bring, bring into power because that was never the deal. He was, as we've sung about all morning so far, he is our king. He calls us to follow him. We serve him. Our lives are to be poured out as an act of worship to him. That's the way of Jesus. The good news of the gospel is uh, that we are to follow Jesus our King, die to self in order that you may live. That's where true freedom comes from. That's where satisfaction and ultimately eternal life comes from. But this view doesn't fit into our current societal narrative, does it? Society says that the path to happiness is for each and every one of us to ruthlessly follow ourselves. Remove anything that would cause you discomfort. Seek your own self-actualization. Get to the, of, uh, get to the top of Maslow's pyramid. Jesus, as our politician, fits that lie absolutely perfectly because you still have yourself at the top, whereas Jesus, as our king, calls it out for the propaganda that it is. So we're going to read the same passage, but this time let's not think about Jesus as a politician here to make your life easier. But instead, think of him as a king leading you through the battle of this world to victory. I'm reading from 19 this time. And a scribe came up and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus is not presenting some idealized untruth about the good life. He's expressing to the scribe the reality of existence. The scribe seems to profess, doesn't he? In this passage, he professes absolute allegiance, but Jesus realizes that this man doesn't know what commitment would actually involve. And at this point in Jesus' ministry, it actually would have been really, really um, appealing in a way to follow him. You know, because Jesus was healing people. There was miracles. There was a a crowd wherever he went. People were excited to see what he would do next. And on the face of things, being a disciple, it would have been a, a great group to be plugged into. You know, those crowds, adulation, excitement. But in the crowd, each person would have had their own agenda for following Jesus. You know, some people were lonely and so just simply wanted company. Others were intrigued. Still others would have wanted Jesus to fail, and we were just watching on for a miracle not happening or him to say something that was inappropriate. But Jesus calls the scribe out. He says, look, to be in the crowd, it doesn't mean that you are a disciple. Being a disciple of this kind king requires some rough sleeping, getting rid of some of the creature comforts that slow you down. It's not about the good life. It's not about an easy existence. Instead, it's a recognition that there is cost in following Jesus. We can't get too comfortable. Don't feather your beds too much because as it says in Philippians 3, verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven. That's what we were singing about. That's what we, we heard with, um, with verse after verse this morning again. But as we see, look, Jesus is not asking us to do anything he didn't model. He had nowhere to lay his head, it says in this passage. He put aside his majesty. He became fully human. And at this stage in life, he traveled from place to place, teaching and loving and caring for people that he encountered so that they may have life. We are called to be just like him. That's the challenge that has been laid down. And it is a particular challenge because our culture tells us at every stage to pursue comfort. Okay, so as we uh, let the magnitude of some of this sink in, I just want to pause for a minute to briefly pick up on that term, Son of Man. Um, It's the first time that Matthew uses it to describe Jesus. And there's a sense, actually, that this term, Son of Man, focuses more on Jesus' divinity than on his humanity, but rather than go into lots of detail now, what we've done is tomorrow night, an hour on Zoom, um, we've got a Reading the Bible special where we'll look at that phrase, Son of Man, so if you're interested, it will no doubt be really good, just sign yourself up for that um, over Zoom, you can find out details on our website. Okay, so... Jesus is pointing out to the scribe the cost of following Jesus with his whole heart. Let's continue with verse 21. And another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Jesus is again illustrating the inadequacy of this man's response. So he had to remind the scribe that sacrifices would be necessary. This time he's talking to this disciple about distractions. So if you read commentators on this bit, they say that the phrase bury my father implies at the very least that the man wishes to postpone his discipleship until the funeral, until after the funeral, and then the mandatory months of uh, mourning that happen afterwards. Some commentators would go even further. So R.T. France says, quite possibly he's saying much more. This expression may well have been an idiom for, let me wait until my father is dead. This man perhaps fears that his family will object, or at any rate, other priorities come before discipleship. In Jesus' time and culture, the family was the highest of the high, wasn't it? It it was exalted at the expense of the individual. So Jesus is simply highlighting that following him is more important than doing what your family expects you to do. This isn't Jesus showing lack of care for someone who's waiting to bury his father. It's him noticing that this disciple hasn't got his priorities right, that Jesus is not king in his life. Our culture... Has different idols, doesn't it? So you probably wouldn't say that family is the the highest thing that we look up to. Often it's the individual gets exalted at the expense of family. So we're called to ruthlessly pursue your own pleasure. You know, this means we've ended up with a culture of people who can't find fulfillment, but are perpetually looking for fulfillment, looking for the next thing. But in all cases, there is a call for allegiance to Jesus to be much higher because he's not that politician serving us. He's our saviour and our king. Where do where do each of our priorities lie? What gets in the way of uh, you or me wholeheartedly following Jesus? Maybe you've said to yourself, look, I'm focusing in on my degree now, but afterwards, afterwards, I'm going to give myself fully to church or... I believe, I believe in Jesus. I believe in the evidence for his death and resurrection. But look, I'm having too much fun right now. Or there's some stuff I just need to sort out in my own life. And then once I've sorted that out, I'm going to follow him when I'm ready. Or look, I know they're not a Christian, but this relationship, it feels so great. Or, you know, I have served so regularly for so many years, I just want some me time. Or, well, look, I'll start giving to church once, uh, financially, I'm in a stronger, better position. <laughs> a slight aside on, uh, on giving, um, Gus, who was leading, uh, uh, well, playing guitar today, um, at the beginning of last week, we opened up the offering points at the, the back, and Gus was opening them up, and normally there's not lots of money in there, because most people give online, which is great, but... Um, This time it was a slight shock because we opened it up and someone had anonymously, they could be in the room now, uh, anonymously uh, put in £5,000 in cash in an envelope with the word building written on it. So we sort of had to slightly uh, swallow deeply. But what an encouragement and um, whoever that is, uh, well done in just stepping out. I don't know your financial situation but well done in stepping out in faith in that way. Following Jesus is costly. costly. But ultimately, he is the only one who truly satisfies, and his path is the one that leads to eternal life. So that is a a weighty challenge for all of us. And as we begin to count the cost of following Jesus, do you know what? We inevitably come to the conclusion that we are unable to do it. We don't have what it takes. It's too hard. Well, the good news is here, this is the conclusion that he wants you to come to. It's it's coming from a place of our helplessness, knowing what a mess we are, knowing what a state my leprous heart is in, that we come to the cross, and then it's at the cross that Jesus makes a way for us to come into his kingdom. And in doing so, we need to humble ourselves, and as we do, we meet our King, our Lord and Savior, and he changes everything. And when this happens, we cease, <coughs> we cease to simply become one of the crowd. Instead, we're a disciple transformed and empowered by the Holy Spirit to fill, fully and wholeheartedly follow Jesus. So we're going to um, spend, spend a few moments responding to all of this. Um, and there might be something that is uh, getting in the way of you wholeheartedly following Jesus. So as we send us on to finish in a moment, we're just going to spend some moment where you're at, um, just reflecting on it. If there's, Ask God, is there anything getting in the way of my relationship with you? And what we're simply going to do is just lay it down at the foot of the cross, lay it down at Jesus' feet. Help, humble yourself before him, and as you do, he will respond. However, before we do that, I just want to quickly talk about baptism. So it was, there were was a um, couple of amazing testimonies at the 12 o'clock service. And it's really been on my mind, actually, preparing for this message. So as followers of Jesus, we are commanded to get baptized. Um, Baptism is a symbol of what happens when we come to faith. So it's a sense in which the old self is, is died and the new self is, with Christ is, is, uh, is risen and we're aligning ourselves with him. But it is more than just a symbol because there's power to it. So if you haven't been baptized, my gentle pastoral encouragement is, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Romans 6 says this about baptism. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Jesus was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk into newness of life. Let's have a band. So, if you haven't been baptised um, and you're and you're a Christian, like we would love to talk to you about it. So, speak to me, JP, Rosie, one of your home group leaders. We'd love to talk it through with you. Our next baptisms are actually going to be on Easter Sunday, um, and as the band plays, as the oh, what are you doing? Oh, I thought I was there. Uh, this is an important moment ben focus okay as the as the band plays what i want all of us to do is just to spend some time reflecting and thinking about what we can lay down at the foot of the cross let's reprioritize our our lives put jesus as center let's see what he does with us